Hi, friend, and welcome to episode 16 of the Taste and See podcast. I'm glad that you could join me for this conversation today. Today, we're talking leadership with Dr. Sam Hemby, and I'm excited for you to join in. Sam Hemby serves as professor of leadership in areas of practical theology and church ministries for the Barnett College of Ministries and Theology at Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida. His education includes degrees from North Carolina State University, Lee University, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and a PhD in organizational leadership from Regent University. Since joining Southeastern in 2002, his duties have included classroom instruction, as well as administration of graduate programs. Dr. Hemby is an ordained minister with 22 years of lead pastoral experience and continues his local church involvement through interim pastoring, local church training, conference speaking, and much more. He and his wife, Rita, have been married since 1973 and have two children and two grandchildren. Our discussion today centers around Dr. Hemby's newest book, Lead Like a King-Queen, which he co-authored with Dr. Charles Galden, that takes a deep dive into the leadership principles of the Judean kings and queen over the span of 350 years and provides application to leadership in current times. You are listening to episode 16 of the Taste and See podcast. We'll be right back. Welcome to the Taste and See podcast, a kingdom-based podcast that exists to encourage saints, empower believers, and reach the lost with the goodness of God. Psalm 34, 8 proclaims, Taste and see that the Lord is good. To taste is to experience, while to see is all about perception. Join us as we discuss our experiences in the kingdom of God and discover how we can impact the world around us through a new lens. Here is your host, Josh Emmerich. Our discussion today centers around Dr. Hemby's new book, Lead Like a King Queen, which he co-authored with Dr. Charles Galden, and takes a deeper dive into leadership principles of the Judean kings and queen over the span of 350 years and provides some practical application to leadership in current times. First of all, Dr. Hemby, I want to say it was an honor to learn the practice and presence and heart of leadership from you while I was in seminary, and it is an honor to have you on the show with us today. Oh, thanks so much, Josh. The honor is mine. I really appreciate the opportunity. So before we begin, I like to remind, you know, our, you know, I just like to remind everyone that we're all humans, even though you are a distinguished professor at a wonderful university, you're a human being just like us. So I want to ask you just a really fun question. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Oh, wow. Now, that's quite the question. <laughs> um, and being kind of a fan of some of the Marvel and the DC things that are coming out, uh, I'd have to think on that just a moment. But I think really, quite frankly, right off the top of my head, I think that if I could be granted a superpower, it would be um, to assist others in receiving and utilizing superpowers themselves. And I don't mean for that to sound kind of cheesy, but, you know, I think one of the things, for instance, in the whole superpower 
construct that we see is it depends on an individual uh, to be the hero when, of course, when we recognize what we're trying to do in a kingdom sense is that God's called everybody to be a hero. So I kind of see my my job and my desire. I don't know how well I do the job, but my desire is to be a hero maker. So maybe that would be my superpowers to help is to grant others their superpowers and the ability to use them. That is so good. And if there is anyone from Marvel listening to this podcast, I encourage you to reach out to Dr. Hemby. He could be a new character in the Avengers facility, the <laughs> trainer and facilitator. Um, so reach out. That, that's a very unique uh, type of role. And I think it's something that they desperately need. So Dr. Hemby, tell us more about you. How did you come to know Christ? And how were you, how were you called to pastoral ministry and eventually teaching? Oh, I guess great question. I uh, I was raised in the church really from the time I was a baby. However, uh, not to be critical here, but just looking back realistically, it was the church that uh, was more of a of a social setting, a uh, time of fellowship for people. I never remember. Now I could have, but I never remember hearing the uh, the clear gospel proclaimed as I was growing up, even though I was in a church context. And it wasn't until I went off to um, do some college work in North Carolina State, uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, that we attended a little meeting at a little small church down the street from where we were living. And at that point, heard a very clear presentation of the gospel. Uh, that night responded to an old-fashioned altar call and, and gave my life to Christ at that point and really began a a um, ongoing relationship, of course, with him. And that's been several decades ago. I will have to say, though, that looking back on my training in um, in church as a child, though I was not saved as it relates to having a real vital relationship with Jesus, I do draw from some of the things that I learned, uh, you know, during those earlier years, attending Bible classes and vacation Bible school, those kinds of things. So I see now that God was using that as seed time. I just never had made that commitment. But that's how that's how I gave my life to Christ. Wonderful. So tell us more about your calling to pastoral ministry. How did that unfold? And how did you eventually end up at Southeastern teaching um, tons of students who are preparing for lives of ministry and leadership? Sure. Well, I never saw that particular piece coming, the whole pastoral ministry and and uh, where we are now. But uh, I had been training at North Carolina State, as I mentioned earlier, uh, primarily because a guy that I had worked for had a very thriving business, um, had asked me to go to school and he was going to expand his business by opening up a, a, a sister business in the area of uh, agricultural uh, pest control, those kinds of things. And so that's what I was training for. And uh, after I'd given my life to Christ and came back and actually started in that business with this very kind gentleman, uh, I was standing in an azalea bed one day <laughs> contemplating some treatment and quite frankly just heard the Lord speak to my heart and say, I've called you into ministry, which was quite a shock to me and to him as I eventually got up the nerve to tell him after all of his investment, which direction I went. But 
Anyway, we uh, then began to make plans to go in that direction. Long story how all of that unfolded. But uh, once we began pastoral ministry, after a few years, I began to sense the need to further my education and recognized really the ultimate calling to take the educational experience that was being gained along with the practical uh, pastoral experience that I was actually doing vocationally and to combine those two and bring them into some type of ministry training setting to help the next generation uh, that were preparing for full-time ministry. I never saw Southeastern on the on the radar screen. That came very serendipitously. That would be a whole podcast in and of itself, but that's where we've ended up. And now uh, here in just a couple of months, I'll be finishing up my 20th year there, um, combining that practical experience with the educational preparation. Well, what an incredible story. And as someone who has walked through um, you pouring into students, thank you so much for those 20 years. And and I can only hope and, and, and just rest assured that God will do immeasurably more in, with, and through you um, as you continue to raise up uh, leaders for the kingdom of God. So you wrote the book, Lead Like a King Queen, and it released in July of last year. And I remember you sending me a text message saying, hey, make sure you purchase this. <laughs> and I went online and I checked it out. And uh, it is one of my favorite books. One, one of the things that I love about it is it it takes the span of 350 years. I believe it's after King Solomon mm -hmm. uh, leaves the throne, if I'm correct. That's correct, and, yes. Uh, the northern and southern kingdoms, and I believe this focuses on the southern kingdom of Judea and how um, we can look at the lives of those kings and queens. And, and you can tell that this book is a scholastic work, but what I appreciate about it most is that while it is a scholastic work, written from a wealth of experience and knowledge, it's very practical. And it just offers very practical like applications for us who lead in the 21st century. So what caused you to write this phenomenal book? Well, it's a, a very funny story. My friend, co-author, uh, Dr. Charles Golden, he and I, uh, as we were coming out of some of the COVID stuff, some of the lockdown, we were playing golf one day. And as we came home, I was riding with him. We pulled in my driveway and he was just sharing with me. He said, you know, I've really got um, a lot of notes and I've been teaching on the Kings for years and years. And I want to put it in a book, but I don't want it to just be a historical, biblical, archaeological overview of the Kings. I want to have a real strong 21st century leadership application attached to it. And I just don't feel like that uh, that I'm the one to do that. And Josh, I'm telling you, when he said that, uh, it was like I had an out-of-body experience. <laughs> I said to him, hey, I'll do that part. And at that moment, it was like he had an out-of-body experience. It was like a, a, a divine moment in his little car there sitting in the driveway. So just in that next two or three minutes, we talked it over very briefly what it might look like and made a commitment to do that. And that was early in uh, 2021, maybe late 2020. 
And to be quite honest with you, and he's heard me say this on numerous occasions, I walked in the house and then I came out of my out-of-body experience. And I thought to myself, oh, no, what did I just do? Did I just commit to write a book with him and uh, just laughed about it? But we took it from there. So that's how the the whole thing uh, got started. And then, of course, there were many, many meetings after that as to how we would construct it and that kind of thing. But um, what we ended up doing after that was Charles wrote the biblical, historical and archaeological piece uh, behind each of the kings that we dealt with and then uh, left it up to me then to take the 21st century application that I felt like would be a strong application from uh, the biblical piece. And so I wrote the end of each chapter, the application piece. And so that's that's how we broke it up and how it uh, came to be. Well, that is such a great, that's such a great approach. And I uh, appreciate you would discussing how that all got started. Uh, so now that the book is written and it is published and it, it is getting into the hands of many people, including myself, what do you hope to accomplish with it? Well, I think in a nutshell, we were. Ta- I was talking with someone uh, not long ago. It was actually on an interview about the book. And they asked that question. And uh, basically, what we hope to accomplish in this is to help fewer leaders crash and burn, bottom line. We're seeing way too many people uh, not finish well, some not finish at all, and those who finish not finish very strong. And while, once again, that is certainly not criticism, because the older I get, the more I realize that it's not easy to finish strong. But at the same time, realistically looking at everything that's going on, how desperately we need to to emphasize those uh, pillars and those foundational pieces that are going to help us not just start well, but to finish strong. It's relatively easy to start well because of the excitement and the motivation of something new and a new challenge. But after you know a number of years and the knocks that come and the walls that people hit and that kind of thing, discouraging times that leaders uh, experience in whatever you're leading, then uh, some of that, if we're not careful, can knock, uh, knock enough edges off to where we begin to compromise and do some things that eventually erode our foundation and cause us to uh, to not finish well. So I think in a nutshell, that's that's what I would say about the book. Of course, we would hope that it has some educational quality to it as it relates to the overview of the kings. We would hope that it would have some even entertainment quality to it. Uh, with some of the stories. And by the way, all the stories are are uh, firsthand. None of these things were written from a book that we borrowed from somebody else. These books uh, came from, from personal hard knocks and mistakes and a couple of times that things were done perhaps a little bit well, but you know, these are all personal things. So hopefully it would have a multiple uh, uh, use of applications on uh, several fronts in that, re- in that regard. I love how you mentioned finishing strong in leadership because I think so often we can fall to the trap of, okay, we want to lead well, we want to be strong right now, but we often, when we think about the future, we think about things we want to accomplish, not, um, 
you know, not necessarily the art of self leadership mm-hmm. and how do we finish well and finish strong ourselves as leaders. And it brings me to one of my favorite books. And it's actually a book I read in one of your classes and it's called Longevity in Leadership by Philip Lewis. Yes. And Lewis states that in order to produce lasting change and effectiveness in organizations, leaders must learn how to create stability and longevity in their leadership. Mm -hmm. This is done through four qualities that must be developed. And let's see if we can test my knowledge and see if I, if I, if I still got it. (laughs) Uh, I believe it was trust as well as to endeavor, aim and motivate. Yes. And you touched on this very concept of trust in chapter three of the book while discussing the reign of King Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was, as you all mentioned, was a good king. He was a naive king. He was a military king and a prophetic king. But what stood out to me the most is how you state that Jehoshaphat displayed a desperate confidence in the midst of a white water season. Mm. What on earth does that mean? Can you explain to us what you mean by both of these paradoxes? Absolutely. The term white water uh, came from, I think, originally uh, from a guy by the name of Peter Vale. Peter Vale was an educator, and uh, I think he just died maybe a year or so ago. But in, I think it was in 1985-ish, sometime in the mid-80s, he wrote a book from the business perspective called Management as a Performing Art. And in that book, he started talking about this term that he called permanent whitewater. A little bit later on in 1996, he wrote a book uh, dealing with the educational perspective, and it's called Learning as a Way of Being. And he revisited early in that book that concept in, uh, that he had talked about a few years earlier, the permanent whitewater concept. I first heard it from Stephen Covey. I think Stephen Covey probably popularized the term, but essentially what Vale said and what Covey followed up on with is this. Um, it gives you two, two mental pictures, one being the placid lake on a sunny afternoon uh, that offers no danger, basically. It's pretty predictable, so one can kind of lay back in a canoe soak up a few rays and take a nap and you're not going to end up at the bottom of a waterfall because it's a placid lake, not a lot of problems, very predictable. In contrast to that, permanent whitewater brings up a totally different mental picture. This is uh, being tousled back and forth and very unpredictable waters and some danger involved and all those kinds of things. And so contrasting those two, what Vale says is that we are entering into, and notice now this was 20 plus years ago, 25, 30 years ago. I think it was almost prophetic in a way. Vale says we are getting ready to enter into as a society and every organization that makes up the society is entering into a time of permanent whitewater. And so it's the, the operative term there that's so important is it's not just whitewater, but it's permanent whitewater. And so the implication is, is that for us to survive and to thrive in a new paradigm, rather than the placid waters predictable, now the permanent white water, permanent, it's not going away. We're going to have to change our approach and change our skill sets 
to be able to adapt to white water rather than just trying to constantly hope we're going back to the placid water of a time gone by. So that's the permanent white water, always tossing. Things are unpredictable. Things are surprising and things are hard to nail down. Well, Jehoshaphat was attacked on three different sides by three different nations very unexpectedly. And it's so true in life and in leadership that oftentimes challenges come multiples at a time. Very seldom is there one challenge, but they usually come in threes as it did with Jehoshaphat. And when Jehoshaphat was basically uh, confronted with an insurmountable enemy, he knew he did not have the forces to attack this group, to defend himself. He, with great desperation, laid this conflict out before the Lord. And God, of course, in the story we find in Second Chronicles chapter 20, God gave him direction about how to handle it. And he eventually was uh, very victorious, so much so that they not only survived, but they thrived through it, ended up taking home a lot of treasure from the enemy as a result of that attack that was um, that was unexpected. So I talk about three things that characterize Jehoshaphat there, having this desperate confidence. And I recognize that's quite a, uh, quite a paradox, just that statement. But someone who, who is desperately confident can recognize that it's okay to feel powerless. And what a day that we're living in right now. We're just trying to come out of COVID. Hopefully we're on the other side of all of that. And that's been a, a, a construct that none of us saw coming. It's been a challenge that none of us knew what to do with. And so we all, as a nation, as a world, as a church, we all felt somewhat powerless because of the uncertainty of it. The second thing that Jehoshaphat did that's characteristic of being desperately confident is it's okay to be clueless. Not only did we feel confident, uh, powerless in the middle of all of this stuff going on, but we didn't know what to do. Jehoshaphat said before God, he said, we have no might against this great enemy. There's the powerlessness part. And the next phrase, he said, neither know we what to do. And that's kind of where we are in a day of permanent whitewater. Things are very surprising. Uh, things are very challenging. So it's okay to be both, to sense yourself as both powerless and clueless. But the third thing Jehoshaphat said to God as he was praying about this confrontation he said, but our eyes are on you. We have no might against this great company. We are powerless. Neither know we what to do. We're clueless, but our eyes are on you. We are confident because we know that you are our strength and you will not fail. And so God came through in a very powerful way in Jehoshaphat's situation there. That is so good. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I just want to read a sentence from this chapter that really just spoke to me and really encouraged me that I think will be really encouraging to um, you, friend, as you listen to this, to our, our conversation together. But Dr. Hemby, you say in here that God is graciously inviting us through the present dilemmas to find in him our source of strength, stability, and success once again. Mm. He is granting us a desperate confidence. Mm. Mm. That is that is so, so good. Well, um, I, I think it's Josh. I think it's, you know, I think it's encouraging to me to to realize I don't have to have all the answers. 
Um, and it reminds me of the um, church I'm at right now. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm at Church of God Sarasota in Sarasota, Florida. And my wife, Cindy, and I uh, joined this um, younger church plant um, last year. And um, what the approach that our lead pastors have taken is, you know, um, whatever doors open, whatever happens, they want it to be where they can say, God did that. And it was only God who did that. Mm. And and I love it because I, I feel like that right there is a prime example of this desperate confidence that they don't know what's ahead, that they don't know if all the provisions will necessarily be met ahead of time, but they know that God is in the midst of it and God has done it. And that's when I read that, that's immediately what I thought. And I think it's just a just an encouraging and empowering reminder for all of us that it's okay to not have all the answers, but it's so, but it's exceptionally okay for us to lean into the one who does. And so I, I, I truly appreciate that. So um, when you look at this book as a whole, not just specifically chapter three, but the book as a whole, how might it best be utilized both individually and in a church or a corporate setting? Well, that's a great question, and we've heard we've heard several comments that deal with that specific issue. First of all, on an individual level, uh, what we have found is that most people that have been in church any length of time, of course, are familiar with a time period to where there were a bunch of kings <laughs> that were leading God's people. Um, many times, though, uh, just because of the intricacies and and it's act quite like, quite frankly, some of the confusion uh, that uh, seems to come out of just reading the biblical narrative, just because so many names, so many dates, and sometimes the northern kingdom of Israel uh, is intertwined with the southern kingdom of Judah. So there's a lot of confusion there. So on an individual level, I think those who want to do a deeper dive into the period of the kings of the of the southern kingdom called Judah. Uh, we'll find it uh, delightful as to how this is laid out and some of the more specific aspects of each of those kings and how they reigned and the time frame and the backdrop in which they reign. Also, from an individual perspective, uh, people seem to be finding it, and for this we're very grateful, uh, quite inspirational from a devotional standpoint. So perhaps the, the chapters are relatively short, so it's easy if you, somebody wanted to take a a devotion, a day, or even spread it out into two days and for one day do the uh, the historical backdrop portion and just kind of meditate on some of that and then the next day get into the practical application of that, however they wanted to do that. But to use it as a, as a self-development devotional piece, you mentioned a moment ago how important it is for, for us to stay on top of this whole self-leadership, self-development thing uh, for for a lifetime, or to be lifelong learners, so people tend to be finding it beneficial uh, in that way as well. As far as on a corporate level, um, churches. Uh, well, first of all, as a pastor, uh, someone who still is involved intricately in the local church, we do interim pastors all the time. We, as I think you know, Josh, we go to Alaska every summer and pastor churches that uh, are in pastoral transition which uh, will be good. We just got our assignment last week for this upcoming summer, so we're very excited. 
But as someone who pastors, uh, what we're hearing pastors say is this is a very valuable book related to being able to preach on the kings in a very systematic uh, fashion. So uh, there's 12 chapters in the book. It would be a great, uh, I think, a great uh, way to approach this topic over a quarter in a year and uh, give people a little bit better knowledge of the southern kingdom and their kings and then very practical application of that. And then the third thing that we're hearing is uh, the value that some are seeing in the book in, in, a, in a small group setting, uh, regardless of whether that's in uh, a class that meets at the church or in a home group or whatever. We've tried to write this to where it would be very user-friendly uh, to anyone teaching a smaller group, because I think uh, as you get into what uh, constituted the kingship of these leaders, and uh, some of the rises and falls of those, I think it could very, be very conducive to conversation in a small group context. So those are the three things that people have told us thus far that they're finding it uh, useful in. I think that's great. I think that's one of the things that I appreciated most about the book is that it presented the historical narrative in a way that can sometimes be hard to read. I, you know, I'll be honest. I have always struggled through First and Second Chronicles. Yeah, always struggled through it. It, it is hard to read, um, but I love how your book, um, with you and Doctor Galden, how you present it in a way that um, is more of a narrative that is easy to understand and practical. Um, is, is something that I really appreciated the most about it. Um, so now I want to kind of shift gears and I want to talk about leadership in general. Um, and as you know, the Taste and See podcast centers around Psalm 34, eight that states, or it really declares taste and see that the Lord is good. Not that God is mediocre or that he's okay, mm-hmm. or that he's, he's sometimes good. God is good. He yeah. is the embodiment of good. How have you seen the goodness of God play out in your life, and particularly in leadership? Well, while that is, once again, that is a massive question because God has been so good in the midst of all of it. And I think one of the things, Josh, that uh, immediately comes to mind, and this may sound strange to some, but I really appreciate how God has not... uh, kept us from being uncomfortable all the time. (laughs) Now, I will have to admit that during the times of discomfort, and those have been numerous in different ways, but uh, in times of discomfort, that certainly uh, does not lean to a lot of appreciation immediately. But looking back in retrospect, uh, leadership transitions, the, the normal things that all leaders are going to face, you know, you have have times to where there are great seasons of of forward progress, and then you have times to where it seems like you've plateaued for a while and can't seem to get traction. Then there are other times to where, you know, there are there are disagreements as it relates to philosophies, and people leave, and so you have uh, some some uh, like Chuck Swindoll said one time, two steps forward and one step back. So those step backwards. Uh, have to regain some strength and traction and momentum. But in the middle of all of the discomfort and the dis-ease that God allows every leader to go through, 
uh, it's I'm grateful to look back on it and say, you know, uh, though it was uncomfortable, it certainly was one of the most beneficial parts of both my personal spiritual life and my leadership life to have to wrestle through some things. And in the process of that, God getting rid of, rid of some things that needed he, internally that he needed to get rid of and also add some things that were lacking uh, that he needed to place in me. So uh, the goodness of God is not always what we appear, what we would think goodness appears to be. Uh, it's kind of like the passage in Romans 8. I was thinking about that last week in depth where it talks about all things work together for good to those who love God and are, are the called according to his purpose. It did not say all things uh, initially feel good or appear good. It just says all things work together for good kind of like that tapestry that every thread in it is not bright and colorful. Some are quite gray and dark, but they all blend together to make a beautiful picture. So that would be my initial response to that question. That's amazing. Give me anything and I'll show you Jesus. There we go. Awesome. That is so good. So Dr. Hemby, if you could leave us with one takeaway from our time together, what would it be? Well, you know, this is almost kind of dovetailed in with the last question. A few years ago, a number of years ago now, we had a speaker at Southeastern, and I had the incredible privilege of uh, talking with him, actually going out to lunch with he and a few other guys uh, while he was there. He's a very well-known author. His name is R.T. Kendall. Uh, Dr. Kendall's a great man. He's kind of claimed to fame is he pastored Westminster Chapel in London for 25 years, though he's from Kentucky originally. And I give him credit for this story, but it rocked my world when I was in a small setting with him, small classroom setting, and heard him tell this story. So this is what I'll leave us with. Dr. Kendall lived in South Florida for a while, and those in South Florida recognize that there is a, a, a plant, it's actually kind of a hedge, that people use to hedge in their yards, but it also bears fruit, has a little small berry on it. It's called the Suriname cherry. And uh, the cherry itself is is black. But uh, Dr. Kendall was talking about as a child being raised in at times in South Florida, that he loved to eat those Suriname cherries, but there's a problem. The Suriname cherry has two problems. Number one is that it is mostly pit with very little meat on it. So if you're going to do something with it, like make a pie, it takes a bunch of them to get enough meat to make the pie. But the main problem with the Suriname cherry is that it's very difficult to tell when the cherry is actually ripe because you can't tell by the natural eye because an unripe Suriname cherry and a ripe cherry can be the exact same color. So here's the problem. If you pick an unripe Suriname cherry and bite into it, it is one of the most bitter tastes you will ever have. But the moment it ripens and you bite into it, it is one of the sweetest things you'll ever taste. So he was telling that story, and he was talking about this point, and this is what I want to leave us with. The way you can tell if a Suriname cherry is ripe or not, and thus bitter versus sweet, is not by what it looks like, but you walk up to it and barely touch the little cherry hanging from the vine in the palm of your hand. 
just barely touch it. And with the, with the mere touch of the palm of your hand, if the cherry falls off into your hand, it's ripe and very, very sweet. But if you have to pull on it too much to get it to off the vine, it's still unripe and very, very bitter. When I heard Dr. Kendall tell that that day, it changed my life, Josh, in this way. As a leader, you have to be very, very careful that you don't try to force doors open, kind of like your pastor you were talking about and what they're looking for God to do. Because most of the time, and this has been my unfortunate experience at times, if you have to kick the door down or force it open with too much pressure, what's on the other side will tend to be quite bitter. But if you'll just barely knock, just barely uh, push on it just a little bit, and it opens it before you, most likely it is a God opportunity and will end up being very sweet. So what I would say to our audience is God's a God of opportunity. He is a good father. So just make sure that you're not trying to exert too much pressure to make something you want so badly appear to be God, but just barely push and let God do the rest. That is so good. Um, and what you just explained is something that I just learned after 36 years of life of not trying to force to make something happen. But, you know, just resting in God's presence and trusting and having that desperate confidence that he will pull through with what he wants and in his timing. And I remember I sat back and said, you know what, I, I felt the Holy Spirit just urging me to start a podcast and um, God's doing insurmountably more now through it. Thank you so much, Dr. Hemby, for your wisdom, encouragement, and pouring into us today. I pray that we are better leaders through what our hearts have heard. It has been my joy, Josh, to talk with you again and to be a part of this great podcast. May the Lord continue to richly bless what you're doing for His glory. Well, friend, that concludes our conversation with Dr. Sam Hemby today. If you would like a copy of his book, Lead Like a King Queen, you can find it on Amazon or through the link in the story notes. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can scroll down to find the link. Don't forget to tune in to the Taste and See podcast next week, where I have special guest Dr. Alan Ehler on the show to talk about his newest book, How to Make Big Decisions Wisely. Also, if you haven't yet, be sure to follow the Taste and See podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you enjoy our show, would you please share this episode with your family and friends? It's super easy to share on Facebook, Instagram, or through text. In fact, we're having a special giveaway this week, and it's super simple to get in on it. Just share this episode on Facebook or Instagram, and be sure to tag the Taste and See podcast. You will be entered to win a free copy of Dr. Hemby's book, Lead Like a King Queen. Until next time, friend, this is Josh Emmert, and never forget that the Lord is good. Thank you for listening to the Taste and See podcast. We hope that you were encouraged and empowered by our conversation today. For future and past episodes, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by visiting www.tasteandseepodcast.com. Now go, live for the kingdom, and always remember that the Lord is good.